All right. This is Gene Nathan, and this is Crosstown Conversations. And um, I think, I hope we're going to have a little bit of fun tonight because, um, really, it's, I, I know it's hard to have fun in the world that we live in today. It's hard to pick up the newspaper and not be reading some idiotic um, things being said by. Uh, I, I call the I call the president a, case, a juvenile delinquent with arrested development. I figure his folks sent him off. Rich folks don't send their kids to military school unless those kids got problems. He goes to military school, right? That tells me the whole story. But he's still that same guy. He hasn't changed. Oppositional, right? If you tell him not to do something, he's going to do it. If you tell him to do something, he's not going to do it. I mean, anyway, I don't want to. I'm not going to waste time on him, but. What we're going to talk about tonight is is the the democratic field, and um, so I have this crazy um, idea that's it's just it's not real; it's a fantasy. But I'm thinking, wow, what a field of smart, capable people! It's just that not one of them are really presidential fully. Maybe there's some presidential elements to them, but. So I thought, what if they were all running for the cabinet? Wouldn't that be the most sensational field of, of brilliant people for, so how about Elizabeth Warren for education? How about Juan Castro for housing and urban development? How about Yang with his ideas about the new economy for commerce? Thank God somebody's talking about the new economy because that's why we got where we are because nobody else is paying attention to it. That's my basic theory is that we're just not dealing with the economic revolution we're in and kids are being left behind and old folks are being left behind. Bernie for Treasury, get that inequality straightened out with the taxes. Pete Buttigieg, how about him for defense? He went to the West, to the uh, Middle East. He knows what's going on. And uh, maybe Beto, I really don't know about Beto, but um, either either agriculture or arts, (laughs) one of the two. So that's kind of crazy, huh? Dino Cedar is with me. Uh, Dino and I first met each other working for uh, Sonny Mouton, who was running for governor. And um, Dino has such a cool idea for a spot, and, and he actually did it, and they let him do it. You tell you tell about your spot as a way of introducing who you are. Well, uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me, Gene. It's a real pleasure to be here and see you again. Um, the guy, Sonny Mouton, was pretty much in last place. I think he was in a week six place. And so we knew we had to do something provocative, different to get people's attention. So every one of the gubernatorial candidates had a slogan. I remember Bubba Henry's was uh, uh, hubba hubba for Bubba or some crazy (laughs) stuff like that. Uh, I'm nobody's man but yours was Paul Hardy's. And I don't remember the other ones, but they were the typical inane, uh, rhetoric, rhetoric, political slogans. Uh, so we decided that we were going to do a satirical ad and make fun of them. So uh, I was living up in North Louisiana at the time, so I called a, a friend who had a farm. His name was Buddy Romer. And uh, <laughs> I said, Buddy, I need a bull. I didn't know that was Buddy that day. It was, gave me it the was bull. Buddy. <laughs> yeah, and I, I said, I need, a, I need a, one of those Brahma bulls from your farm. So, uh, I need it uh, Friday night at the KSLE TV television station in Shreveport. So uh, Friday night, uh, his sister Melanie uh, delivered a 
2,000-pound Brahma bull into the, into the television station. And um, I had a, a cameraman from L.A., a really talented guy named Jeff Kimball, who shot Top Gun, Top Gun and uh, a bunch of other films. And so he said, we're going to put some hay on the ground and, and light it on fire so that it'll put smoke in the air so it'll look more like Hollywood. So we did that and brought the bull in, and um, uh, we uh, we gave him some peanut butter so his mouth was moving and the announcer's talking, <laughs> reciting all the slogans from the other candidates. And at the end, the announcer says, uh, tired of the same old bull, vote for Edgar Mouton. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we did a couple of takes. Um, but what happened was uh, the epilogue to that spot was that the straw – um, that we put on the ground to affect smoke and give texture in the air caught fire, more fire than we really needed. And it spooked the bull. He knocked over a light, started a bigger fire. They had to call the fire department. And, uh, I didn't know about all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So we nearly burned down the TV station. Oh but uh, we were real pleased with, with uh, the effectiveness of the ad because Mouton went from a weak sixth place to a strong sixth place. <laughs> in the course of a game. you probably maybe remember that. But, yeah, uh, it was but, a lot um, of fun. So, we so, had a good time. So Dino Cedar is a political media genius, and that was in his youth that he did that. Was that your first kind of major campaign, or I think it might have been the first statewide. We had done some congressional campaigns and some others, but I think that was the first big one. Right, and uh, it was a humbling experience to. Start off in last place and finish in last place. <laughs> you know. But you yeah. learned. We learned. We learned a lot. Yeah, it was and, fun. Uh, and he's been. And doing, I met you. And he and he's been doing political media ever since here and in Washington, and um, has written a few books. The most recent of which just landed uh, here in the studio called "Dead Fish: Humor and Satire in Political Advertising." So. Um, you know, when I put up this idea of of the. Uh, of the um, cabinet as a candidate. This is not the first time I've thought of this. I mean, I've, I've really thought sometimes you kind of want to know who a guy is going to hire because look at what our drain the swamp president has hired. Mm-hmm. Nothing but mm-hmm. critters mm-hmm. from the bottom of the swamp. Mm-hmm. And um, so to, to have some idea of who you're going to get is, is not a bad thing. So it was half in jest, but also half thinking, well, God, I mean, there are some smart people here who have something to offer, and what if we voted for the whole mm-hmm. cabinet? But I couldn't come up with a candidate for president. <laughs> so that's how, about, how about in. How about any of the above? I don't know. You tell me. Who, who of these people well, do you think seriously, A, can beat Trump? And that's what everybody's mm-hmm. focused on. Who do we who do we pick yeah. to beat Trump? Which, by the way, is not the way I like to choose a candidate because mm-hmm. that's just the mm-hmm. worst possible uh, solution. And then I'm not one of these people who's into the whole centrism thing and you know get the moderate thing. And to me, that's all same old, same old. And that's how we got Trump because to me, the Democrats have been same old, same old for too long and really forgot their roots in the working people of the of the country that's just me mm-hmm. so yeah me. i think that's a that's a pretty good observation i think there's there's uh, two things going on here one is that the pollsters are telling us that uh trump kamala harris elizabeth warren and uh, bernie could all be trump wait the, you, the, you said trump you meant biden no i said i, I can said, beat trump that 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 uh, biden uh harris uh elizabeth warren and bernie sanders 
right now, according to their polls, could all beat Trump. You think so? Well, that's what the pollsters are saying. Do you think so? The second part of my statement is going to be, to answer your question, I don't trust the polls. Right. They told us that that uh, Hillary, Hillary was going to win Michigan, yeah. was going to Wisconsin, Florida, right. uh, and so it's it's an inexact science. I go with my husband's yeah. polls. He knew from the day Trump mm-hmm. announced that son of a mm-hmm. gun was going to get to be president mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. from He's, the very beginning. I, I want to talk to him about some stocks. <laughs> he can I don't think he can do so well there. <laughs> yeah, but but my feeling is, and and I agree with you that that we shouldn't pick a president based on which one is the most viable candidate to beat the incumbent, we should we should run the best person. And uh, I like several of the candidates, and, and I will lean probably ultimately to the one that I like the best, who I feel that has a really good chance to beat Trump. And who's that? I don't know yet. Honestly, don't well, give, know Well, give me your top three. Well, I would put Biden in there because I think Biden could beat Trump. Uh, I don't think he's the brightest bulb in the marquee. Um, I like Mayor Pete Buttigieg. I, I think he's a great. He's awfully young. He's thirty-seven. Uh, he he's a uh, he's smart. Uh, he's, he's smart. Just like he served smart. his country in time of war. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the country is ready for a gay president. I don't think so. At thirty-seven years old, mm-hmm. I don't know if the country's ready for a, a, a smart intellectual female from New England. I don't know if she can carry some of these southern states or midwestern states. Uh, I like her. Uh, Kamala Harris is bright. She's tough. And the other thing is to consider the optics of a political campaign. In other words, during a during a debate, who's going to really perform uh, against Trump? It has to be somebody who's strong. Remember how he creeped up on Hillary in that debate? Yeah. Well, what I wanted Hillary to do was turn around, turn around and say, and say yeah, what get are back. you doing? Get back behind your podium where you belong. You'll yeah. have your moment in the That's, sun. Everybody was saying really. that. Right, right, right. So who who can – now, Kamala Harris, she's a prosecutor. She could tear that guy apart. You know, here's how I feel about Kamala. Um, she's smart. Um, and, and she, yes, she would be terrific against him. I, I have no doubt. Um, let's talk about Kamala as president. And uh, I don't know enough about her, mm-hmm. but I haven't heard her platform yet. Mm-hmm. I just haven't heard the policies. Mm-hmm. And Warren, who comes off like a, a school marm, and that's unfortunate, and waves mm-hmm. her arms mm-hmm. around. She and was a school teacher. I yeah. wish she would kind of just mm-hmm. kind of straighten up her shoulders and get her elbows down. Mm-hmm. But but she's got she's thought through how to do things, and I think that she would actually be a good president. So, but I, I don't know how that yeah. style of hers is going to, again, beat Trump. Yeah, you know, look, I've been involved in several hundred campaigns, and sadly, uh, the men in this country, a lot of them, haven't come around to where they can accept a strong, smart, aggressive woman. You they think can, so? So we're still there. Yeah, you know, I don't. We're not there yet, um, and and. Uh, uh, a lot of men can. Uh, I married to a strong, smart, <laughs> tough woman, and and uh, and I admire that in her. Um, but a lot of men, unfortunately, are feel either intimidated. I don't know what it is psychologically, whatever their problem is, but they they have they have difficulty with it. So I don't know. I I just I I, I really despise this man. You talked about him being a juvenile. 
I think he's a dangerous psychopath. Oh yeah, well he's a sociopath, narcissist, with who lacks empathy. Yeah, um, and that you don't need that in a in a, in a leader of a no, country. No, he's he's yeah. he's gotten he's always been scary, but lately he's getting even scarier. Where you just you just he, he says things with he, the old expression. He has a total lack of any kind of um, control over what he says. He just he just keeps saying the bad stuff all the time, or he thinks that it really works, and and uh, ultimately it will beat down any kind of intelligence and, and sanity. Mm-hmm, exactly, and he knows that it uh, that it resonates with that forty percent solid support he has, and that's who he's talking to. And in my book, I talk about uh, an anti-Trump campaign that we did uh, in 2016, uh, directed toward women mostly. Um, and that I also talk about a campaign we did against David Duke when he ran for governor in 1990. And at the end of that campaign, we we crushed that little piece of vermin, and he crawled back under his rock until Trump came along. And now Duke feels it's okay to come out. And uh, and so we have white supremacy. We have we have violence. You see, we know that, but this is the only this, this is so. There's another side to it, right? And that is that. We had that white supremacy all along. It, it was, was dormant. Just, it was just under the carpet. Right. It was under the right. rock, and and it came out. And mm-hmm. so the one positive thing you can say about this time that we're living through is that uh, the, the curtain's been pulled back, and we have to deal with this on a whole different level. The only thing I'm afraid of is that the animosity between the races and between the classes can just get worse. And I think that's the thing that I worry about the most in a way. Mm-hmm. I, 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 it has gotten worse. Yeah. yeah. It, it and, has and, gotten and, worse. and unless we change the leadership, it'll continue to get worse. You know, I, I moved to the South in 1964. Where are from, you from? From Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. So I moved to Shreveport, Louisiana in 1964, the, the capital of the Confederacy west oh of the God. Mississippi. This was two months before passage of the 64 Civil Rights Act. I was an 18 year old, uh, yeah, stupid kid. But when I saw what racism was and segregation was, I got involved in politics right away because I knew it was wrong. My father was a minister. It's not the way we were raised. We knew it was wrong. It was ugly. It was mean, vicious. Um, and, and so I got involved in politics. And now I'm, I'm seeing that same sort of violence. And so and over all these years, we haven't progressed. Uh, so it has to change. And one way it's going to change, well, two ways. One way is get rid of Trump. And secondly, I think that church leaders, um, churches, synagogues, uh, mosques, um, they need to step up and talk about how this is immoral. It's wrong. It's antithetical. Yeah, where are they? Um, they're starting to step out. You know, we had uh, uh, three leaders, uh, bishops of the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., run a full-page ad in the Washington Post chastising the president. For we ran that in my newsletter. Uh-huh. Oh, good, good. I'll, good, I'll, I'll make good. sure that you uh, yeah. have access to that. Now, as far as white Christian evangelicals who support Trump and think that God appointed him, anointed him, I don't have much hope for them. But mainstream religions, Christian religions, um, Jews, Muslims, they need to step up, especially the opinion leaders, the leaders of the faith leaders in those those congregations need to step up and speak out and talk to their congregations. I used to write sermons for my father in church, and I saw how those sermons affected people. And I wrote another book about the Holocaust in Greece, and 
the essence of it was that the bishop and the mayor of an island told their Christian parishioners that if you're a good Christian, save a Jew. And so that ethos permeated the faith. And the Christians on that island thought that, well, if the bishop says we're supposed to save a Jew, then let's save a Jew. Consequently, on that island, all the Jewish families were saved. It was the only island where all the Jews were saved in their entirety in a country where 90% of the, of the Jewish population perished. So, I, I, you know, I've had, uh, I have such a hard time dealing with the irrationality and the, and the time-wasting and totally counterproductive focus on side issues such as abortion, for example. Yeah. And yeah. I don't for the life of me understand why that is such a galvanizing issue when the the opportunities of people and consequently the welfare of people going forward in life here oh, you um, have a tap. Thank is, uh, is, is so difficult to focus on. Why, why are they involved with these side issues? Homosexuality is another one. But um, in, instead of dealing with this very profound era of change in the economy and the kind of jobs that are out there, which is, is, is really what's driving crime, it's what's driving um, the disillusionment of people and, and really making it so hard to get anything um, new done. Mm-hmm. And, and, and frankly, um, uh, I've only voted for a couple of Republicans in my life, uh, especially in New York. You know, it was easy to vote for a Javits or a Rockefeller, so yeah, you can say that I was I understood Rockefeller Republicans, but I've voted Democrat most of my life. But I, I, I'm just disappointed in them. I was disappointed in Clinton. Oh, I, poor Carter. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what to say about Carter. Um, and and uh, um, Obama, I thought, you know, thank God he got health care done. And maybe mm-hmm. that's all you can do in mm-hmm. a term of I office, think history get something, one big sure. thing done. I think history would, would be very kind. I worked on his campaign, and I was just so impressed with the man. Says, and, yeah. you know, you were talking about these, the abortion. And I live in a place in Washington where single-issue uh, advocates really – they control millions of dollars of money. Abortion, as you pointed out, animal rights, gun rights, health care. And there are these uh, associations and advocacy groups – that espouse, and some of them are my clients. I do a lot of work for the Humane Society nationally, and they're wonderful people. But all they care about is that one issue. That one issue. And um, I think why? What, what is that about? Well, they they're passionate about it, and and I agree with them on that. But also, I'm passionate about other issues as well. I I look. I'm 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 happy for you to have a gun, but do you really need an automatic okay. weapon? Do you really need an AK-47? I don't think you do, and I'll and I'll fight you on that one. Um, and so they say politics is the art of compromise. So I think what these Democrats need to do, they have to understand that. Look, you got a Democratic governor here, uh, and he is pro-life. I know. Okay, so when it comes down to it, are you going to not vote for him? Are you going to stay home? Are you going to vote for one of these crackpot Republicans? Um, you'll probably vote if you're a sensible, rational human being. You'll probably vote for the Democrat. Because he seems like a decent guy, he just happens to have this uh, opposing view on um, 
on the that, uh, that, that on that one issue. Yeah. And so that's that's that. So you can't always agree with every issue. And I think that's one of the endemic problems that the Democratic Party has. They tear each other up. They tear each other up on issues, on platforms, in these debates. And I think I don't know who it was, Yang or somebody in the last debate said, "Hey, we need to stop attacking each other. You know, we're we're here to run against Donald Trump." Wasn't that Pete? Yeah. I think might, it was, might have been. I think it was yeah. Pete. It was after Kamala went after Biden yeah. in a very unappealing yeah. un- 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 way. I like the guy's style. You know, he's conversational. He's quiet. He doesn't overmodulate. He's reasonable. Um, and you know, I think he should appeal to be. He's a devout Christian. He's. A I, I think he'd make a great cabinet. Guy. Or maybe vice president or cabinet guy, yeah. uh, you know, something like that. But 37 know. is awfully young. I don't know. It, it really worries me. Let's talk about uh, the state of Louisiana because so it's, it's pretty horrifying to mm-hmm. live in a state where they are now talking about Republicans possibly achieving a supermajority in the legislature. And I'm thinking, what, what happened? We were the bluest state in the South. I remember when mm-hmm. I first came here. I really had a hard time getting my arms around the politics here because on the one hand, I really didn't understand how close we were to segregation. It wasn't that many years. Mm-hmm. I come here in 72, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So from, um, from New York. From New yeah. York. Uh-huh. So that must have been a culture shock. Huh? Yeah, that was uh, – <laughs> well, yes and no. I mean, in a certain way, the demography of New Orleans is similar to New York, you know, the mixture of of all the different kinds of people is, is similar. And the, and the cultural – um, uh, interest in the city and, and focus on creativity that it was I, had in common with New York, and and of course there's plenty of liberals here. There were then. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> By the way, I have no idea what liberal means. I'm I'm really not hung up on being liberal and not being liberal. I, yeah, I, I, why don't we talk about the issue and forget about liberal and conservative? I, I mean, hate I, the labels. Y- y- you know, I don't even know. I don't know what either one of them mean anymore. I don't know what liberal means and I don't know what conservative means. Yeah. All I know is I don't yeah. like the idea of a red, a red state supermajority in the legislature in the state that used to be so blue. What happened? What's sure. going on? Well, you had mentioned uh, Rockefeller and Jacob Javits and Edmund, Edmund Brook and Republicans like that who were conservative fiscally but, but, but humane. Were humane and liberal on social mm-hmm. issues. I mean, that was the Republican Party. But I, 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 I wouldn't I, use the word liberal. I really think humane is the word. Humane. Yeah, Rational. Yeah. Rational right. and humane. Right. And, and show some empathy for human beings. And I don't see that in this administration. You know, when you, when you send out a, a written edict telling uh, immigrants that they have to take their sick children out of the hospitals, they have 30 days to leave the country. What is that all about? Where are the Christian leaders? Where are the faith leaders? The silent. The silence is deafening. Why? Yeah, you. you I, I guess they just. It, it, it's kind of like. Is it, it? It's some variation on the Crusader theme, in a, in a certain way, isn't it? It's 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 um. They feel they're at war. They feel they're at war. They're at war with uh, all these different ethnicities. There's a lot of fear out there. There's a lot of fear. Mm-hmm. And, and if you go, forget about the religious leaders for a minute. If you go to the people, I understand the people better than the, than the religious or any kind yeah. of leaders right now. The people mm-hmm. are suffering. They don't see where their jobs are for the future. They can't put their kids in college. Um, their whole... I've, I've always had the theory that 
people who are fearful and who have a, and have no prospect for the future mm-hmm. and have therefore mm-hmm. not a healthy self-esteem mm-hmm. those are the folks mm-hmm. who you got to worry about because Xen- they have Xen- nothing to lose yeah, absolutely xenophobia is a tactic of dictators uh, david duke used it effectively uh, and and donald duke uh, donald uh, it was a freudian slip donald yeah. duke uh, Donald Trump Donald uses Duke. it. Yeah. <laughs> right, we that might down. write that down. Right? Donald, <laughs> Donald Duke. Duke. <laughs> Not to be confused with Donald Duck, who, who has more yeah. sense. But uh, you know, you know, I did two campaigns against Duke, and I was can active. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Donald Duck? Uh-huh, uh-huh. But yeah. with a Duke regalia on him. Yeah. Donald. Yeah. yeah. Creepy, creepy. But uh, I'm going to have nightmares tonight. Now that you mentioned that. But, but you know, I'm, I'm Greek, first-generation Greek, and xenophobia comes from the Greek xenos, which is stranger, and phobia, which is phobia, which is fear. And when you use that as a technique to frighten people, to make them feel that blacks or Jews or, or somebody else is going to take what you have, it's a strategy, it's devious, it's disgusting, uh, but Trump found out that it's effective, and he's using it. And, uh, and it has its roots. If you go back to um, uh, earlier times in our history, in the South in particular, there was a tremendous amount mm-hmm. of blaming the other guy, blaming the other. black uh-huh. people uh-huh. for uh-huh. whatever was going on, yeah. um, or blaming Catholics for that matter. I'm, I was right, raised right, Catholic, right, right. and um, it, uh, that's a blaming the other guy. Sure. In the 50s, the John Birch Society uh, used to blame the Jews. Uh, and accuse them maybe one world oh, banking conspiracy. You know, they always get blamed. You know, so uh, yeah, so now it's immigrants, uh, blacks, Jews, immigrants. I mean, what are they? They're all stealing. Is that going to backfire? Finally, is 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 his inhumane treatment of people at the border? There's got to be some peeling off of people who realize that that is just so inhumane. Yeah. Isn't isn't that yeah. having some effect? I isn't hope that so. peeling off some voters? I hope so. I really do. So what about back in Louisiana? Let's talk about Louisiana. Yeah. How are we going to move the ship, this great big boat, in a different direction? How are we going to – what's that expression when you have to steer a really big boat in the water and it takes a while to get it to move away from the icebergs? I think anybody who has the answer to that is a fool. I think it's a complex question that deals with economics, social issues, psychological issues, humanitarian issues. Um, you know, I went to graduate school at LSU, and they always told me that the problem in New Orleans was that we didn't process the goods that came in here. Uh, we didn't set up distribution centers. We we loaded all the goods onto uh, freight trains and trucks and sent them elsewhere, and consequently we did not uh, expand and develop uh, the economy like uh, in North Carolina or Dallas or, or other Atlanta, other cities. So there's an economic issue. Um, yeah, and if you if you lived in New Orleans, you would know uh, how I beat the dead horse of trying to talk about how the creative economy mm-hmm. is the asset and talent base and brand of our state that we are uh, failing to develop the mm-hmm. same way. Yeah, that needs to be developed, and I know you're very active in that arena, and I hope that people will recognize that and and develop it and fund it and make it happen because there's such a wonderful history here, uh, such a legacy of creativity 
in arts, music, theater, um, writing, literature, uh, you know, Tennessee Williams, Walker Percy. I mean, they're just – and so there's there's – there's got to be a way to capitalize on that. I mean, so that's – I think that's one answer to your question is to get people like you to to really move the creative aspect of the city and the history of the city and get people to take notice and develop it and uh, and in, in, infuse it in the schools. I mean, I noticed one part of your program was, was literature. Well, it's – we talked about this. It's so easy to teach high school kids – how to publish a book because you can self-publish now on Amazon. The kids can write a book and and send a Word document to Amazon and get a book back for less than $5. What? Less than $5? That's right. This book, I self-published this book right here, and and uh, I can purchase this book. This this cost me $5. It's $15 uh, from Amazon or $5 for a, um, what do you call it, Kindle. But so like a kid – in high school, can do an art book or a book of poetry or a novel. And then, you know what the thrill is for an author to get a box on your front doorstep from Amazon or from any publisher and it's full of your books? It's a thrill. And it would give our children here in in Louisiana uh, a sense of confidence, self-esteem, pride, motivate them to continue in the creative endeavors. And whatever field they go in, whether it's it's music or whatever, um, it would give them a sense of self and uh, that kind of confidence that would be good for them and, in and, college and, 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 and elsewhere. And use the human assets that we have here like no place else. I mean, I came here from New York, which is a very creative city, but it's a marketplace. Mm-hmm. But the creativity here is is on every doorstep. Well, on I, every doorstep. And I hope that the mayor, uh, the, the mayor is far-sighted, and I'm, I'm sure she would appreciate these sorts of efforts, and that the business community uh, would appreciate it because it's in their best interest to have an educated workforce, and to have a city where uh, kids are graduating from high school and going to college or vocational school wherever they want to go. But it just makes sense. I'm mean, involved in right-brain creative stuff all my life, and I know your husband, Robert Tannen, is a, is a renowned artist. And I think for – so the problem is in a lot of these schools, the first thing they cut in these administrations is, mm-hmm. is the it's arts the and music program in schools. That's, that's a sin. It's, it's terrible. Well, um, thank you for ending – uh, our ne- that's uh, our our session today because I will have you back uh, on that note because of our, this is very very important to me and I really believe in it deeply. Um, I've I've enjoyed having you on. Uh, I, I, you didn't give me what I was looking for, which is the prediction of who is going to actually emerge as a Democrat. I told candidate. you that the only person that would make that prediction is a fool, and I've, I've done some pretty dumb predictions in my life. <laughs> Fair but, enough. Uh, Fair enough. Yeah, so. Dino Cedar, his book is called Dead Fish, Humor and Satire in Political Advertising. I can't wait to read it. How can people get a hold of it? It's available on Amazon, Dead Fish, Humor and Satire in Political Advertising. Uh, there you can get it in black and white and color. And you can also get a Kindle version. Black and white in color. I love it. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask Jazz uh, to uh, help us line up our 
uh, our um, recorded interview that I did with another very creative person. I don't know if you know um, uh, the gentleman who has written so many books in 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 uh, Louisiana and has is coming out with a book now about all of the industrial sites along the river. Richard Sexton. Uh, is having a opening of a show of his f- photographs at the Historic New Orleans Collection tonight as we speak. That's why I pre-recorded the interview. And um, I think you're going to find um, his observations to be very interesting ones as well, and he's going to uh, take up the second part of the show. Um, Richard also did a book called um, Elegance and Decadence, and it was a beautiful book. Did you ever see that book? No, I haven't, but it's just, uh, just write just it down the title, because it's, it's, it's like about the more it. creative interiors mm-hmm. of the city. And so instead of your usual kind of beige homes, this is the more exotic and, and eclectic homes of the city. And I, I'm a big fan of it because I want people to know that they don't have to be hedge fund um, brokers in New York to buy art. There's a lot of art available in our city at, at reasonable prices because we have so many young people who unfortunately are underpaid for what they do. Dino Cedar, thank you so much. Are we... Oh, thank you um, so much for having me. I'm going to have to... Uh, so um, what candidates are you representing right now before we go? Um, well, we have three candidates in Jefferson Parish, uh, two for the council, and Cynthia Lee Shang running for parish president. And yeah. how's that looking? Looking good. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. She would be the first female parish president in Jefferson. That would be fantastic. Yeah. At a time when we also have a female mayor that's in right. New Orleans. That's right. How interesting We're, is that's that? That's progress. Do we yeah. have women in other cities in the state? I really don't know, honestly. I've lost track. Baton Rouge? Uh, no? I think there was a woman mayor of Shreveport at one time. Mm-hmm. And I know Virginia Sheehy was the first female state senator. Uh, but other than that, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you don't work in just Louisiana, too. We're, we're doing what's called stretching, folks, because my recorded uh, interview is not quite ready. But um, it'll be in just a moment, and we'll be hearing from Richard Sexton. But in the meantime, where else in the country are you working? Well, right now we're, uh, we just finished a campaign in Florida where we outlawed greyhound dog racing there. Oh, whoa. And so we'll be doing oh, yeah. that in other states. With yeah. Society. And uh, we, are, we started a pack two years ago called Yakety Yak Pack dedicated to the demise of Donald Trump. So we'll be <laughs> Yakety Yak Pack. We'll be activating. And, uh, Is that a website? Can I yeah, go to Yakety yeah. Yak Pack on? Yeah, yakityyakpack.com. Okay. I love that. Yeah, and you'll yeah. see some of our work there. Great. Feel free to make a donation. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we'll be doing uh, – we'll be getting that cranked up. And uh, whatever else comes along. Another book? Possibly. Possibly. Working on one? Um, not not yet. I'm still trying to market this one. We are working on a stage play based on a previous book that I wrote, and uh, so we've got uh, we've got a big stove with lots of burners, lots of projects on the back burner, a couple on the front. And you're working here with uh, Karen Carvin. That's right. She's my and uh, her father is one of the legendary yeah, political media people. Yeah. Who elected just a few mayors, and I don't know if he ever elected a governor. I don't remember. Well, he worked for a number of governors. I know he worked. He did some work for Sonny, actually, didn't he? I don't know. But I know he worked on. I worked worked for Edwin Edwards, and he was on the campaign. So I know Mm -hmm. he's probably worked for several. Edwin Edwards. Yeah. Have you talked to him lately? 
Uh, I haven't spoken to him, but he sent me a handwritten thank you note when I sent him the book. Ah. They're really a class act. I enjoyed working with the guy. I really did. Um, my husband worked with him for many years mm-hmm. um, uh, on the bridge study. My husband uh, helped locate the new bridge across the river and um, on the arena, getting the arena to be mm-hmm. placed next to the Superdome. That was one of the things he worked on. And he said, you know, he was always a straight shooter. Oh, yeah. Never always. asked him to do yeah. anything he shouldn't have. Of course, I was a reporter at the time, so I don't mm-hmm. know. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're a skeptic, huh? No, I mean uh, – uh, the wife of the guy that he's working with on a lot of projects is a television reporter, if you see what I'm saying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, but I, I don't yeah, think yeah. that's uh, the, uh, what it has uh, has anything to do with it. I think he just um, knew who Tannen was and, and appreciated what he did and, and left that alone mm-hmm. and just worked with it. But I, I think he was a fantastic governor and got a lot done. And every interaction I had with him as a reporter was it was it was the best mm-hmm. because. Um, he could be both. He was both straight shooting, but also could be very funny. Did he, was, he, did he answer your questions? Oh well, let me give you one of my favorite answers. Okay, so um, I, I had to sandbag him one day, uh, as I say, uh, when I was instructed to um, to interview him about uh, a contract that he had given to somebody who was basically a friend, a uh, architectural contract. And so I'm got my mic in his face and he's saying, you know, why did you give that contract to your friend? So he said, well, let's see. If there's this guy A and guy B and they're both good and guy B is my friend, why shouldn't I give him the contract? Plain and simple. Mm-hmm. And that was mm-hmm. the end of that mm-hmm. story. That was not as good as the answer that once F. Edward Abier gave me when I challenged him with a question that he didn't like. And his answer was, why the F should I deal with that when I'm blah, 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 so I couldn't use it. Oh, you couldn't beep, bleep it out? <laughs> we didn't beep in those days. You didn't days. bleep in those days. <laughs> we didn't beep. So he throws that word uh-huh, in, and I was uh-huh. like, okay, I can't use that answer, yeah. and I can't, can't use that question. So yeah, it was yeah. done. So, um, yeah, that was uh, uh, a different time, a different time. Now they beep all night long on every night. Uh, every evening show yeah. and every yeah. political and the, show. And the and Democratic and debate you had. And, and you then had you to... sit and listen to uh, um, our, our, our that guy in the White House swear mm-hmm. left and right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How are we doing over there? Uh, one more minute. <laughs> and, well, last thoughts, Dino, as we let Jazz get our, our stuff ready. Well, I would just. Do I get a little bit of overtime for this? <laughs> okay. I would just encourage people to get out and vote and vote. Right. And and especially young people, you know, the the vote, the voting population is skewed toward older voters. Uh, I encourage young people to go out, register and get out there and vote. So here's the challenge. And and he's got my stuff lined up now. But here's the challenge. I'll tell you what my very smart intern just graduated from school, said to me when I asked her how she felt about politics, and her, and her, her answer is basically, I don't want anything to do with any mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. So how do you motivate kids who are so turned off on mm-hmm. all this mm-hmm. stuff mm-hmm. to care and be involved? That's the challenge. Yeah, that is a challenge, and you have to find uh, issues that, that, uh, that they can relate to. I mean, if their grandparents are on Social Security, show them that the candidate A will cut your grandmother's Social Security or Medicare or whatever. Or, uh, you know, issues that, that relate to them, and maybe that will get them motivated. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah, kids, get out there and vote. All right, Dino Cedar, thank you so much. Uh, come back again uh, during the, this, this 
period between now and the election as, as things get much. hotter and to. crazier. I'm sure you'll have some further thoughts on it. Thank you very much. And thank you, Jazz, for getting uh, Richard Sexton, photographer. His new book is called The Ephemeral River, and it's all about all those industrial sites along the river. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. And um, thank you very much. Richard Sexton is, um, I, I think in some ways he's one of the most important uh, photographers in town because he, uh, like the other report, um, uh, photographer I would consider to be very important to our city that we just recently had on the show, Tina Freeman, he's focused on telling us things that we need to know about where we live. And um, he has a new book out that um, he is introducing uh, just in uh, moments, practically, from when you hear this. Um, that is uh, uh, giving you a picture of the Mississippi River as you maybe have seen it in pieces but not in toto. And it's, it's a very important view. So the book is Enigmatic Stream. Richard, tell me about the inspiration for doing this book, what you were trying to accomplish with it, um, and, and, and the role you hope it's going to play. Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, I first explored the River Road 20 years ago when I was working on a book for Chronicle, uh, Vestures of Grandeur, which was about the um, historic plantation sites of the 18th and the 19th century. And that was the focus of that project. In the course of doing it, I drove up and down the river. I saw all of these newer 20th century industrial sites. So I learned about them. And uh, shortly after I finished Vestiges, I decided I wanted to photograph. I was, I was very curious uh, about the industrial sites and, and all of it. It's the bridges, it's the ports, it's the levee, uh, and it's all types of heavy industry along the, uh, the river that I wanted to photograph. And, and as, as you've said, I've heard you say, uh, not just petrochemical. We all tend to think that that's what it is, but it's a lot oh, of different Oh, there's a lot of... more than just that. There's yeah. a lot of granaries, for instance, which mm -hmm. we think about, oh, that's agriculture. But when you see it and the look of it and everything that's going on with it, you see that even agriculture has been industrialized. It's all industry now. And so I wanted to photograph that, and I wanted to photograph it in a very straightforward way. Um, it's something that we all know about, uh, but the river road is kind of uh, isolated, and, and so is the river itself. Uh, it, we, there's not a lot of... Uh, pleasure craft on the river. It's all plied by tugs and tankers and ferries, and ferries are the primary way that we get out on the river uh, in this part of it that I've focused on, which is Baton Rouge to uh, just below New Orleans. So um, I, I wanted to have a look at it and juxtapose the river as this organic part of the natural landscape and look at the engineered status the river and how we're trying to exploit the river economically. And it's, it's been going on for decades, of course, and um, the latest mani manifestation is the heavy industry, which was once the future. It, it's, uh, it represented only a few decades ago uh, the most uh, avant-garde type of progress uh, that, that 
uh, cutting edge and yeah, future oriented. Yeah, yeah. We thought, um, we thought, but as as you said, um, you know, it's it's not just about the rewards; it's about the risks and about what the side effects can be. And um, we are only becoming really truly aware of that in the past decade. Yes. Well, the the big issue of our time now, of course, is global warming. Um, and um, there's a whole, it, that's a big umbrella of which there are a lot of pieces underneath. The engineered status of the river and the levees and the river not flooding anymore, it's kind of separate from that. It's certainly exacerbated by uh, global warming and that threat and the contributions toward that by heavy industry, those are certainly felt. Uh, but um, that's for, for people that reside in South Louisiana, the issue with uh, the loss of natural landscape, the loss of coastline, the receding coast, the rising sea, uh, that is and, an existential and, and, threat. And, and, and urban development, just plain called urban development, as, as mm -hmm. everywhere else on the globe, that's kind of um, uh, covering up the land. And uh, interestingly, in today's paper, there was a story about um, efforts uh, on the part of the city council and I, I think the mayor to encourage permeable surfaces in oh, all of these car lots that uh, are, are asphalted over or concrete and that just cause the water to rush into yeah, our uh, system and flood the city. Yeah, that's a common sense thing that should have happened uh, a long time ago. That's been available for a very long time, and it's been in use in many, many places, and this is ground zero for where it should have been developed in the first place. Uh, but we we were maybe a little bit late to the game there in that in that regard. I think that um, there's, there's just simply been um, such a hunger for economic development and jobs. And when these big um, chemical companies dangle um, big numbers of, of what's going to be generated by their properties, which doesn't necessarily benefit us, we get some share of, of revenues, of course, in the state. But again, the cost of uh, what they do and and um, kind of the de minimis job development that really comes from those plants is is something that I don't think people understand until it's too late. Well, I think one of the things that we're learning, and it's great to be having the discussion, is how we deploy technology and evaluate that risk versus reward equation, which is seldom done right, you know. It's always the focus is on the reward. And risk, we want to not think about. It's like, what could go wrong, right? And so uh, it's always in retrospect that you come back to that. And I've just been intrigued by, ever since the Europeans arrived, there was and has been an incessant effort to reap the economic benefit of the river. The river's why we're here. And all the things that we have done over time uh, to ensure that economic benefit. Uh, and it's, it's a fraught history. It certainly is. Go all the way back to slavery and the Civil War. All of that was tied up in the fact that people were making huge amounts of money. 
I was shocked. By exploiting their fellow man in a way that should never have been allowed. And, yeah. and so uh, we had to get past that. And then the next phase is heavy industry. And then that looked like the future for a very long time. And, and the fact that there could only be good things coming out of this. Then you look at, well, how safe is this environment to even live in? I mean, that's, that's a, a conversation. Uh, what are the risks? I mean, if you, when you look at these little ranch houses next to oil refineries and chemical plants, it sort of looks like, you know, this could be dangerous. Uh, and turns out there are some risks there, and so that's a conversation. The engineered status of the river and what that is doing for coastal erosion, that's another conversation. So what I'm trying to do with Enigmatic Stream is just uh, uh, point, point the mirror at society and at South Louisiana and say, look, here's what it is, here's what it looks like. Uh, there's pros and cons, risk and reward to everything. This is, how do you feel about this? I'm not trying to tell people what they should think. I think that um, what, what you do is you hold the mirror up and let them see for themselves. And that can be the most compelling argument in many cases. Well, and, um, you know, without a doubt, um, artists uh, throughout history, really, have often held up that mirror. Right. And, and, and shown people um, their world in a way that they could not spread their arms wide enough to really see and understand and encompass. Well, it's just not something that you're focusing on. I mean, I, I think that, you know, Robert Frank just died the other day. And his book, The Americans, which was photographed in the 50s, came out in the, in the 50s. It showed a post-war America that we were not prepared to look at. And uh, it took a long time before people realized, you know, hey, this is insightful. It's not, the American dream is not quite the utopia that is, is that we're thinking about. He was, he was looking at the fringe and the negative aspect of things. Um. On the other hand, you have also, at the same time that you have been um, calling our attention to the, the risks, okay, you have also shown our rewards in I some did, cases. I, there's achievement in here, and there is um, a kind of a, um, well, Paul Snyder, who uh, wrote uh, an essay for the book, he described the photographs as being awesome in the 19th century use of the term, which means beautiful and horrifying at the same time. Uh, and there is some of that. You look at this and you say, wow, this is incredible that this is, is here. And, and just look at the degree of uh, development and sophistication and technology that it has taken to create this thing that's in front of you. But at the same time, we see that, yeah, there are, there are, um, there are costs, there are risks, uh, and uh, it's a very complex thing now that we have to evaluate going forward and think about going forward. But, but in, in, in caring about it deeply, 
um, which is hard for some people to do looking forward to the future when the risks come home to roost, so to speak. So a lot of people, uh, I've heard, there was a quote recently in the newspaper from someone who basically said, I don't really care about the future, I won't be here, kind of thing. Well, that's a common thing. And I mean, you know, it's almost like what I liken it to, is trying to uh, convince 22-year-olds about, you know, eating right, smoking, uh, living too large maybe and, and because when you're that age death is so far out on the horizon you can't really conceive of it it might be just around the corner but in your mind you're thinking of just it, it being a wide open future and uh, just you know get out of my way I don't want to hear that and so we're, as a society that's kind of where we're, we're at we're adolescents at this point. I mean, we think we're more mature and wiser and all of that. Technological but, wizards yeah, and all that. That's not where we are. We're at a very youthful sort of point with a, uh, a, a sense of uh, devil-may-care you know, attitude. But we're having to adjust our thinking just like people have to do as they get older and they go through more tragedy in life and other things happening. Suddenly, they're more introspective and reflective and they're more cautious. But that comes with age. But where I was going was, was um, how do you uh, encourage people to care more in the present tense rather than ha having to get people to wake up about the importance of the future and, and how closer the future is. But um, I, what I was going to is that some of the books you've done are, are testament to the richness of our culture, the beauty of our culture. Um, your book, for example, um, uh, Elegance and Decadence, which is of the interiors of the city, but not... Uh, the beige ones, but more the exotic, more, I don't know if exotic is the right word, but uh, creative ones. Right. Um, and, and so that sort of heightens that sense of, that we all have in New Orleans, which is, we know this is a very threatened place environmentally, but we're very addicted to it because it is so culturally rich. And, and so you've also done that job of bringing that home and showing yes, that to us. That's an entirely different mirror. But nonetheless, it shows the importance of this place, how special it is, what a unique achievement you know, we have here. And it would be a, a, a treasure that you just would not want to lose. So when you have an existential threat, uh, like global warming, uh, other issues we were having with flood control and just simple drainage, you know, in the city. Uh, it it makes you realize that these are, these are all important things that we've got to uh, pay attention to what we're doing here. Uh, and um, yeah, I always try to uh, focus in a thematic way. Uh, an another book that's similar to Enigmatic Stream, perhaps, is Terra Incognita, which looked at the landscape of the Gulf Coast and uh, how it was threatened, and that was almost a decade ago now uh, when, uh, when I worked on that project. So I'm always trying to uh, focus on things that I think are important to people and that um, will 
add to the discussion and the perspective of how we want to look at ourselves and, um, and be better, I think, and but also to revel in, in, in what we have achieved. I mean, that's, that's um, and, and, an and, important um, thing as well. And also sort of, uh, I think, you know, there's a sense about the um, 19th century world that was in New Orleans, and, and that's, a, a again, that's a, a world fraught with... Um, Texts and subtexts. Right. So, you could argue that it was actually more problematic than today in a lot of ways. Well, when you look at slavery right. and the the backs on whose wealth that was built at that yeah. time. I mean, it's ugly. It's ugly, and there was there was uh, a, a war fought over it, and uh, tens of thousands of people died, and we're we're still. You know, we're still waging that war because uh, it's not resolved. It's, it's not resolved. It's not no, resolved. It's not resolved. No, um, and it's it's actually I, I my sense of it is that it's it's actually going to get worse before it gets better, without a doubt, in in, in more ways than one. But um, your book Vestiges touches on that period, and again holds up a mirror, and 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 also um, I think that a lot of people sort of have this very romantic notion of plantations. So I have a lot of, of friends and, and visitors um, who come into my life here in the city, and um, uh, the plantations are always on their agenda. They all want to see them. They well, one of the great, I, I don't want to call it a tragedy, but it was a disappointment for me. The working title for Vestiges all through that project was Vestiges of the Ancient Regime, which the publisher at the very last minute said, no, you're not doing that. We're not. Uh, that's just too brutal of a title. And I, t- I tried to tell him. I said, "Look, this is a very uh, problematic history. These are the remains of an era that was uh, uh, extremely fraught with with problems and issues and unfairness and so forth. And this is these are relics that we appreciate seeing today." Uh, and value in, in, in a kind of bittersweet way. But they wouldn't let me. In, in, in fact, it had to be vestiges of grandeur, which implies that you're only looking at principal houses when, in fact, it was, uh, you know, slave cabins and, and everything else that was a part of that world. But, you know, when you're selling books and, and uh, there's just incessant desire to put a positive spin on everything, even a complicated story. In fact, I kind of thought I would never do uh, a plantation book just because of what was behind it. It's a very pretty facade with a very ugly backside. So um, the recent uh, series that the New York Times put out, I don't know if you got that particular Sunday issue when they did um, uh, a whole thing about the anniversary of the beginning of slavery in this country, and there was no, one. That, oh, oh, you, you should try to get it because it's remarkable. They just did a huge spread on it, and uh, oh, that was a sixteen nineteen. Right, one. Yes, right, yes. So, um, yeah. and and there was one paragraph. I, I didn't even finish the particular story, but it was about um, slavery uh, in Louisiana, and it talked about how Louisiana uh, during that period 
was one of the richest places in the country, along with the Chicago's and New York's. And um, the reason, unfortunately, however, was slavery, that slavery was the underpinning of the sugar industry, and the sugar industry is what made Louisiana rich at the oh, time. Oh, yeah, Ned, so Ned Sublette did it, a great book about that. One of the problems was the planners were making more money as manufacturing slaves than they were manufacturing sugar because they were slaves could not be imported after a point to change the law and so they were just uh, selling human offspring and they were making more money with doing that and that was yeah. the that was the real cash cow and really not so pretty picture were, yeah, yeah. So um, you're, you've, you've made some points about um, uh, some of the uh, rich culture, going back to the prettier picture of the uh, elegance and decadence. Um, and uh, you, you're calling attention, um, as you said, first of all, about our natural land and uh, the threats to it, but and also now with this book, um, really uh, putting in front of us uh, where we can't kind of just drive past it, these big industrial sites. What's next? Well, um, for now, I'm, I'm just concerned with the opening of this project. I've got some rough ideas for what might be next, not anything ready to announce. But uh, Can you give me sort of just a, a hint of what you're thinking about without nailing it? Okay. One of the things that's sort of in the works, apart from two projects that are already done and I'm still trying to get published, we won't go with those, but for something that I haven't done yet but is a concept, is uh, potentially a book of it would be entirely just facades mm. from New Orleans. Mm -hmm. So it would be um, uh, I've arbitrarily picked a hundred just because it's a good number, a hundred facades to represent New Orleans. Mm. What would those be? Mm -hmm. So that's that's one thing that that may happen. Uh, so, uh, but for now, it's. And, is it, and, and the show is just opening, so let's do the details on the show opening and place and, and time and how long it's going to be up and all that. Okay. The exhibit opens and the book launches uh, on Tuesday, September 17th. The opening is uh, at the Historic New Orleans Collection, 520 Royal Street, 6 to 8 p.m. Uh, and... Uh, that's the Brulator building. Are you going to be building. signing books? Be signing books. In the uh, uh, shop or where? In the shop. The shop okay. will be open. The shop is a great little shop on yes, the right as you first enter. It's a great enter. resource. And, and yeah. they, they expanded it uh, in yeah. the location. Right. And there's a cafe there now, too, and everything. So uh, it's very nice. 6 to 8 p.m. Tuesday, um, September 17th, at the historic New Orleans Collection, 520 Royal Street. That's right in between... Toulouse and Conti, is it? Uh, no, St. Louis is between oh, St. Louis, Louis and Toulouse. St. Louis and Toulouse. Yeah. So, um, you know, park at the Royal Orleans. <laughs> Get in there early. Or and wherever park, you can. Or, or wherever you can. But that's the easiest yeah. uh, place to park um, mm -hmm. because it's right next door, literally. And... Um, Makes it easy to get in there, but it, it's and as you mentioned, uh, it it also has um, this beautiful show of uh, seventy New Orleans artists. Um, yes, and art, I don't, to my art knowledge, of the city continues on the second and third floor. Yeah. Enigmatic Stream will be on the first floor gallery. All right, 
Richard, you are a treasure in yourself um, uh, for us in this city uh, because of these mirrors, as you call them, that you're holding up to both the beauty of our world and also, um, as you said, the risks and the rewards. Well, thanks for having me. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for your time. Take care. This is Jean Nathan. It is Crosstown Conversations coming to an end on WBOK, and I will visit with you again next week.